Hi, my name is Larry, and the Old Testament reading is found in Joshua 4, 19 through 24. The people crossed the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month. Then they camped at Gilgal, just east of Jericho. It was there at Gilgal that Joshua piled up twelve stones taken from the Jordan River. Then Joshua said to the Israelites, In the future your children will ask, What do these stones mean? Then you can tell them, This is where the Israelites crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the river right before your eyes, and he kept it dry until we were all across, just as he did at the Red Sea when he dried it all up until we all crossed over. He did this so the nations of the earth might know the Lord's hands. The Lord's hand is powerful, and so you might fear the Lord your God forever. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Kim. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 6, 1 through 4. So what are we going to say? Should we continue sinning so grace will multiply? Absolutely not. All of us died to sin. How can we still live in it? Or don't you know that all who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried together with him through baptism into his death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too can walk in newness of life. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Kristen. Please stand for the gospel reading. This is found in Matthew three thirteen through 17 in the ESV. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. You may be seated. Every once in a while, I'll meet a young person who comes up to me and says, you know, I, I used to be a Christian or I grew up in church, uh, but now I think it's time for me to decide for myself what I believe. And, and on the surface, that's not such a bad thing. I think there is a point where all of us need to uh, activate our own faith and to say, this is my faith, not just the faith that was handed down to me. But sometimes, every once in a while, I'll talk to a person where this has taken maybe a couple steps Further, and they'll say, well, actually, what I need to do is not just find out for myself what I believe, but actually, I think I would like to explore every religion for myself, and I, I want to I learn about Buddhism, and I want to learn about Hinduism, and maybe I need to hear a little bit about uh, um, what the atheists might have to say, or I might look into Islam or whatever, and, and then they'll say, look, I, I just need to look at all of the options and decide which one is right for me. Now, often when I'm talking to a young person who, who comes to me saying something like this, the tone is almost like uh, one of humility. The tone is, is one that says, hey, I, I don't want to just sort of be arrogant in my faith. I don't want to be arrogant in my belief. And so I need to very humbly here, or at least with the, um, the uh, appearance of humility here, I need to go and explore all these other things for myself. Often the Christian response or the temptation from the Christian who's listening to someone saying these words is to say, oh, well, 
listen, I've got some books for you that will prove to you why Christianity is the best. And we went through several decades here, particularly in the evangelical stream, where we were convinced that if we could just show people the right evidence, it would truly demand the right verdict. And we could build a certain case for Christ that would be undeniable. Now, I know, I, I know Lee Strobel, uh, and he's a wonderful man. And all of these guys, that are, and guys, men and women that are in apologetics, have a wonderful calling on their hearts and lives. So please hear me. I'm not saying there's no reason for apologetics. I'm just saying that sometimes what we, when, the, the thing that causes us to reach for apologetics is our discomfort with mystery. That often the reason we reach for these things is because we want certainty as much as the next person. And we hope that if we put these right arguments and these certain things together, we can eliminate any need for mystery and we can say, look, here is certainty. Here is an airtight case. And the truth is most of these thoughtful men and women who've given their lives to apologetics, that's not the goal that they had in mind. Uh, If you talk to Lee Strobel or if you talk to... These aren't the goals that they have in mind when they began to uh, write what they've written and teach what they've written. All they're trying to do is show, demonstrate maybe uh, the the rationality of of our Christian faith. And and maybe they're trying to respond to certain arguments. But can I suggest perhaps a slightly different approach than the one we're used to taking? Can I suggest that when someone says, hey, listen... I need to decide for myself what the evidence is out there and I need to explore everything and then I will decide which religion makes the most sense. Can I suggest that the response of the church is to say, you know, this faith thing is the ultimate humility. It may sound like humility to go and explore this and prove that, but you know what that does? That puts you over and above all the other religions. And that says, I am the arbiter of truth, and I will stand above it and decide which one sounds good to me, where else what Christianity invites us into is to stand under something larger than ourselves, and to say, there's more going on here than I can understand, but everything that I have believed, I have received. Everything that I cling to is something that has been handed down to me. And so faith, the beauty of faith is its mystery, not its certainty. The beauty of faith is the mystery that that it calls us into, that it invites us into, not the certainty that it has. If you think about it, even to the person who says, actually, I've investigated religions and, and my conclusion is that all religions are the same, and so therefore there's something true about it, and there's something, you know, maybe that we don't understand, and so you can do your thing, and I'll do my thing, and we'll all sing Kumbaya, and we'll be happy because it's all going to end up all right. Now, growing up in Malaysia, as I did, this kind of logic is really <laughs> a, 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 the, the height of arrogance. Because you could never go to a Hindu person and say, Now, by the way, I just think what you're doing is the same as what I'm doing. You could never go to a Muslim and say that. You could never go to a Buddhist and say that. Because this this thing that becomes acceptable in the West to sort of flatten the field and say, well, it's all kind of the same and you can do that and I'll do this, is deeply offensive in the geographies where these religions originated. (laughs) Try and tell someone that what they're doing is essentially the same as what we're doing. And they'll say, no, it is not. And as it turns out, Christianity is not the only ancient religion that makes claims of exclusivity. 
that really lots of the ancient religions make exclusive claims, that this is the only way, this is the only thing. And so in a very real sense, the posture that begins by putting us above all faith is really a posture of arrogance. It's a posture that exalts ourself. And faith invites us to a very different kind of posture. Faith invites us to a posture of humility. Faith invites us to come low, to say, come under. Receive something here that is maybe beyond what you can fully grasp. This morning we're going to witness people going into water and coming up out of it. Now, if you don't see a little bit of the foolishness of this, then I don't think you've grasped part of what our faith is. Like, this is, this is nuts. I mean, where's the, where's the, you know, case for baptism? Where's the, like, rationality of showing how you can go in water and come up and we say, you're new. Like, these people are nuts. You're right. There is something about faith and ritual that is absolutely foolish. That in a very real sense, to believe is the ultimate humility. And maybe even humiliation. For many of us in the West, we've grown up in a country that celebrates faith, or at least historically has privileged persons of faith. It's at least to the point, it's still at the place where uh, a presidential hopeful has to at least pretend that he attends a certain church. Because we respect a person of faith. But really, these first followers of Jesus embraced a severe humiliation. To say, you believe that God became a man? And that he died on a cross and somehow that atoned for our sins. And then on the third day he was raised, but not like resuscitated, like came back to life, like flatlined and then (gasps) came back to life, but like was given a totally new body and was somehow able to eat food, but also walk through walls. And that he breathed on his followers and gave something called the Holy Spirit so that they're born again and made new from the inside out so that they too one day will experience a new kind of body and bodily resurrection and will inherit a kingdom that will have no end. You're nuts! Right. And that's what I want you to see. I want you to see this morning the utter foolishness of faith in Jesus Christ. And I I wonder if our response to the sincere doubter is not one of saying, oh, you weak in your doubts, let me show you how strong I am in my certainty. I wonder if our response should be something like, you feel weak in your doubts, let me show you a place that's even lower than doubt. It's called faith. Let me show you a brokenness that's even lower than disbelief. It is believing what someone's passed on for 2,000 years. And that faith becomes this ultimate humiliation. You know, Paul kind of does this with the Corinthians. Corinth was a city that was a little bit like our Los Angeles, cosmopolitan, full of the the brights or uh, whatever, full of cultural elites, let's say it that way. And they kind of say to Paul, they're like, Paul, you don't impress us like the Greek philosophers do. Where's your wise and persuasive words? And, and Paul, you, you kind of stutter a little bit. And, and Paul, you, and they're saying all these things to Paul. And Paul doesn't say, let me show you the utter philosophical sophistication of the gospel. You know what Paul says? They say, Paul, you're kind of weak. And he says, I'm weaker than you think. They say, Paul, this gospel is foolish. He goes, it's, foolish, it's more foolish than you even know. <laughs> He chose me. They're like, Paul, this following Jesus thing, it's nuts. Paul's like, I know. Foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews, but the power of God to save those who are perishing. 
I, th- I wonder what it would be like for the church to, to not stand up and reach for certainty, but to stand up and, or, or to kneel down and embrace the mystery. To say, yeah, there is this mystery to faith that's much larger than me. And you know, like Paul himself said, that which I have received, I pass on to you. This is a trustworthy saying that Christ has died for sinners of whom I am the chief. I'm lower than you think. I didn't, I'm so low, I didn't even make this stuff up. I'm so low that this was just passed on to me. And you know the, the utter weakness of the gospel witness is who were the very first ones to see the empty tomb? Women! I don't mean to be offensive, but in the first century, women couldn't even testify in court. Now, if the gospel writers wanted to give their message this sort of cultural credibility, they wouldn't have had women be the eyewitnesses. And if the gospel writers wanted to make Christianity be able to bully others into belief, oh, God, help us that we've tried to bully people into belief. If the gospel writers wanted to bully people into belief, They would have had someone else be a cultural elite, be the witness to the resurrection. Instead, the first eyewitnesses are these two weeping women who come back and tell the apostles, and they're like, you guys have lost it. And they're like, you go and see. Then Peter and John run, and they see. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears. And I mean, if Jesus wanted the gospel to be available for the strong and and the certain and the sure, wouldn't the resurrected Jesus have just appeared before Caesar? Why does the risen Christ only appear to a small group of followers on a hillside? You're like, Jesus, where was your marketing guy? (laughs) It's a terrible PR strategy. If you're going to launch your brand, you got to do it in the city, not in the countryside. If you're going to launch your brand, you need some cultural elites to become the connectors and the mavens and the whatever else Malcolm Gladwell calls them in Tipping Point. Now, Jesus, why these poor, helpless delusional because over and over again the gospel invites itself to the weak over and over again the gospel invites itself to the doubter over and over again the gospel invites itself to those who are willing to say this seems like foolishness and yet this is the most beautiful foolishness I've ever seen and it's not just the mystery of faith but the beauty of faith that compels us in that all of a sudden we say okay okay I'm, I'm here To believe is the ultimate humility, maybe even the ultimate humiliation. To believe is to submit to a historic faith, to tradition, even to ritual. So we have this ritual of baptism. This has been a Christian ritual since the beginning. And before that, it was a Jewish ritual that kind of shows up in the period in between Old and New Testaments. And so imagine this visual here of going into waters and coming out of waters. That is the picture of faith saying, I am immersing myself, I am submitting myself, I am surrendering myself into something much larger than myself, and there's much more going on than I can understand or explain or prove, and yet I am engulfed in it. I am compelled by it. The foolishness of faith that is the most beautiful foolishness there is. What is this ritual of baptism? You heard the New Testament reading out of Romans 6. So what are we going to say? Should we continue sinning so grace will multiply? Absolutely not. All of us have died to sin. How can we still live in it? Or don't you know that all who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried together with him through baptism into his death so that just as Christ was raised through the glory of the Father, we too can walk in the newness of life. 
I want to say four things today that baptism is, and I want to tell you this up front. Even if you weren't planning on getting baptized this morning, if by the end of this sermon and in the next five or ten minutes you decide, I want to do this, it's not too late. We do have a few pairs of extra shorts and t-shirts out at the guest table. Make a beeline after the sermon, get it, and come on, let's do this, all right? May we, may we never prevent anyone from getting baptized whom the Lord is working on in their hearts, all right? So it's not too late. Baptism is, number one, identification with Christ. Identification with Christ. We've been going over this with Sophia. She's eight years old. She's going to get baptized this morning. I hope I can hold it together. But we talked about this. Just as Jesus went into the grave and came up, so we go down into the waters and come up. You see, the story that we've been given, this gospel story that we've been given, is not man's search for God, but God's search for humanity. Think of this. Think of this. The story we've been given is not a story of some philosopher who climbed a mountain and and then had a a revelation. The story we've been given is of a humanity, a a world that God made and blessed and called good. And yet the, the humans within this world turned away from God and walked away. And this God came looking for them in the garden and said, Adam, where are you? This is not the story of man inventing ways to reach God. This is the story of God finding a way to rescue and redeem humanity. This is the story of a God who followed us even into our humanity and became man and followed us even to the place where our sin led us, the place of death and destruction. This is a story of Jesus coming and saying, I am going to this place of ultimate judgment and death so that you don't have to live in that place anymore. In the waters of baptism, you identify with Christ, and you say, okay, just as you came after me and identified with me in my death, I want to identify with you in your death so that I can have your life. Jesus took on our death so we can take on his life. Baptism enacts that. Secondly, baptism is an outward demonstration of an inward reality. Everybody say outward inward. St. Augustine described the sacraments this way. He said, all of these sacraments are a visible sign of an invisible grace. God is doing something inside of your hearts that nobody can really see. Baptism says, let's make it visible. Let's show something here. And you know what, what, it, what it looks like? is what, what's, the, what's the invisible work of grace that Christ has done in you? Is it that he's given you another chance? No. Church, Say this with me. The gospel is not a second chance. It's not. You're like, what? Huh? What? You mean I don't get any more? No, no, no. The gospel's better than a second chance. The gospel is new birth. The gospel is not letting bad people try again. The gospel is making dead people now come alive. The gospel is not saying, okay, okay, listen, uh, Jesus... You know, someone, I saw, someone said in a, in, a, in a children's curriculum that, that baptism is like taking a bath so you can get clean from your sins. It is not. It is not that. It is new birth. And you are only born once. And once you are born of the Spirit, you are new. You are new. So baptism ideally... Some of you, you were baptized too young for your faith to be in it, and so I understand getting baptized a second time, I understand that. But ideally, the goal is to wait till your faith is in it so that you can only, it only happens once, just as, a, just as you were only born once. That this is passing through the waters and an outward sign 
of an inward reality. One more scripture, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek or slave or free, sinner or saint, good person, bad person, black, white, whatever race, whatever ethnicity, American, not American, it doesn't matter. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, and we were all given one spirit to drink. You know what baptism is, thirdly? It's initiation into the family of God. I don't know if you've ever, maybe when you lived away from home, lived in someone else's home. Maybe as an Air Force Academy cadet, you know, you, were spon- you had a sponsor family. Maybe as an intern, you had a, a family that kind of took you in. And as much as it felt like home, it probably never was really home because something in you said, well, I'm not really family. Many of you may feel this way about church to say, well, I, I, mean, I'm kinda, I mean, I sort of believe, but I don't, I just, I'm, I'm grateful that they let me take communion because I do kind of believe, but I'm not yet. Baptism is the moment where it says, hey, you've been hanging around the house for a long time, but hey, welcome to the family. You're now part of the people of God. The Old Testament reading was from the book of Joshua. It tells the story of the people passing through the waters again. Do you know one of the reasons why that story is there? Because it's a totally new generation. The previous generation passed through the waters of of which sea? The Red Sea. And then they went through their period of unbelief. Now they're about to go into this new land, this new life together as the people of God. And guess what? They passed through the waters again. Why? Because it's a way of saying, we want you to know what it's like to pass through the waters and enter in as the people of God. Enter in as the family of God. You're now part of it. This is why in in traditional churches, you don't take communion until you've been baptized. Honestly, I, I, I would like to encourage that. I'd like to encourage that, that you can think of it this way, to think of communion as the family table and baptism is this initiation into the family. To say, okay, now that's okay. Some of you say, well, I've already had communion, but I'm ba- being baptized today. Is that okay? That's okay. It's all right. Sinners ate at Jesus' table. Not that you're a sinner. I'm just saying they weren't <laughs> baptized yet. I'm just saying they weren't baptized yet. So I think there's a graciousness to the Lord's table that we can, we, we can see. But, but I think there's something special about saying, This is my first communion after being part of the baptized body of Christ. And so this morning, we're going to do communion after baptism, so please don't leave. When you get baptized, you'll come out this way, you'll go out through the door, you'll change your clothes, you'll come back in and worship with the rest of us, and then we're going to have communion at the very end of service. Why? Because it's this big family table celebration to say, hey, welcome home. Welcome to the family. Last thing, baptism is a public declaration of a personal faith. Some of you may be wondering, well, I believe in Jesus. What's the big deal with this ritual? You told me it's foolishness, but what's the deal with this foolish ritual of going in, coming out? I mean, why? It's a public declaration. Sometimes people will email me and say, could you baptize me at home in my bathtub? Uh, And and sometimes there's a reason for that. They're being deployed. They're, you know, they just need to get this done quickly. I, I understand that. There are situations for that. But do you know why, as a whole, baptism is done in front of the church? Because it's a public declaration. It's a way of saying, this is personal, my faith is personal, but my faith is not private. My faith is personal, but it is not private. And so I am joining this family, and before this family, I'm going to confess my faith before God. 